This is Linux at Work, episode 6, for the 13th of February, 2021. Hello, I'm your host, Ben Vasharan. Along with me is my co-host, Chester Wisniewski. Hey, Chester. Hey, Ben. Now, this is getting more consistent uh, week in, week out. We're doing a podcast, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the consistency. And, of course, we've been alternating between review episodes and news episodes. So we're going to get caught up on some news. We're not going to go back all the way to the last news segment that we did uh, canonically necessarily, no pun intended. <laughs> uh, but let's get on with it. We've got a reasonable list of topics here and I'm really excited. Uh, I'm, I'm, I think I'm excited about the new GNOME 40. I see that they're showing some of the design changes in Fedora 34. And as a, uh, of course, as a, a uh, Arch user, I imagine I will be getting the GNOME 4 desk, uh, 40 desktop reasonably soon after it's released in March, but uh, it's nice and clean. And as a GNOME user, I'm, I'm, um, I'm liking how uh, it's portraying multiple desktops and the uh, sort of, uh, I don't know what they call the, when you hit the super key and it, you know, kind of zooms out, I guess it's the application selector or. Yeah, the activity overview, I think they like to call it. Yes, the activity overview. That's what I'm talking about. I, uh, as a uh, multi-desktop user, like, uh, especially for work, like I have one desktop that I have all my email and stuff on. And then I have another desktop where I have all my terminals and things like that. And then I got another desktop where I have my web browsers that I, uh, you know, doing different projects and doing research in and stuff. So I really like the activity overview mock-up rendering um, on the nine to five Linux article that I'm looking at, uh, which we'll link all this in the show notes. Uh, I think it looks pretty slick and they've got some videos on there uh, showing how it's going to work. The, the only thing that it seems to um, might be a problem for some people is uh, it kind of minimizes the idea of seeing all of your apps and picking something sort of a la start menu. Uh, it's still there. It's just not the default thing. And for some people that might be an issue, but I don't ever use that. Like I've got six things I use day in, day out, and I know what I want to use. I hit the super key and I start typing the name of the thing and then... I go, like I, I launch it, I launch Thunderbird, I launch Audacity, whatever it is I'm doing. I don't need a an application selector. I mean, I, I, I rarely, if ever, use it, but I guess it could be an issue for some folks. Yeah, I get what you're saying. I like the, the view of the multiple desktops because with me, one of the most frustrating things with multiple desktops, in saying that I haven't, I've been a KDE user for a while now, but I still use GNOME on occasions, but I would prefer to have a smaller window pick in view, but being able to see holistically what you've got running in every one of your your virtual desktops. So I think it's a pretty small trade off, in my opinion. Yeah, um, I'm I'm just uh, I'm hoping that it's reasonably glitch free when it comes out because I know one of the things that's going to happen that happens every time there's a major GNOME rev is my extensions are going to break, and then I'm going to see how long it takes for each extension to get updated to work for the new the new version of GNOME, and I'm not like super reliant on my extensions, but uh, I am really hooked on Paper WM, which is a, a tile tiling window manager that now that I've brain reprogrammed myself to know all of the keyboard shortcuts and I can just whiz around and get everything just the way I want it. And it'll be annoying if that breaks. And I suspect with the 
pretty significant changes in GNOME 40. It probably will break. I guess I should get off my butt maybe and go over to the GitHub for PaperWM and see if they're planning already on a port and see if there's ways that I could participate to help accelerate that. You'd think something's in the works. Uh, PaperWM's pretty popular as well, so I'd be surprised if uh, if they don't make any improvements there. But um, oh, it's a win for GNOME. It's really starting to look more and more modern. Um, they're moving across to GTK4 as well. Uh, so you should get some prettier looking buttons and dialogues and everything else as well. Well, I don't want somebody to mistake it for a fruit company product, but that's, I guess, it, and things looking good is never, I guess, a negative. <laughs> I like aesthetically uh, pleasing things, which is why I, I'll remain on KDE for the time being. But who knows what the future holds? Nice dig. <laughs> well, while I was over at 9to5 Linux, I saw they also had an article up about a new release of Phoenix, And I went... Phoenix? What the hell's Phoenix? Like, I, I don't, I, how did I not know about this? So I started looking into it after the, so, you know, if you already know what Phoenix is, there's a new release, which is pretty cool. And it's moved up to the 5.10 LTS kernel and all that kind of stuff. But uh, to me, it looks like a, almost a replacement for things like uh, System Rescue CD back in the day, like a sysadmin, you know, boot environment that you can boot off of a thumb drive and gives you all the tools you need to, you know, fix file systems and recover things and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I think we talked before the podcast, you weren't aware of it either, but you compared it to Nopix. I'll be really interested to give it a try. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. Even when you've just, you know, got to rescue a quick machine virtually, so you're like, well, Let's just mount this ISO boot into it and see if I can change a partition around or something else. Like back in the day when I was a full-time system administrator, I used to use Nopix and uh, there was Nopix STD as well, which was a security tools distribution, which unfortunately has kind of gone to the way of the dodo. I don't think it's been updated in years, but Phoenix actually looks like a really good alternative. It's up to revision, uh, what is it, 122. So I'm surprised neither of us heard about this earlier. Yeah, uh, looking at the current ISO, it's uh, 411 megabytes, which most people probably don't care about, but I'm, I'm because of data protection reasons, I don't discard of thumb drives. And so my first thumb drive I ever owned, I still have, I mostly use it for updating the BIOS on my PCs because of course BIOSes are usually like, you know, two megabytes or something, but it's a 512 meg stick that I have no purpose to use other than updating BIOSes occasionally. And I'm like, huh, Phoenix, 411 megs. It'll actually fit on my, my OG thumb drive from the year 2000. That's 512 megs and I can put it back into use full purpose again yeah see last time i needed live linux i actually went with uh an, the open uh kde edition which is 2.2 gig and when you're, you're desperate for a live boot in stick i would much prefer to download 400 meg than uh, 2.2 gig because then you need to go through the process of mounting it finding an available usb drive and everything else as well so that's a win so um if you use it before me let me know yeah maybe we'll review it or something if we uh if we have an opportunity to I don't want a bad thing to happen where I need to boot a rescue thumb drive. But on the other hand, uh, I'd like to know, I'd like to know my tools before I need them, right? Like I don't want to find out how it works in the middle of a crisis. So maybe I'll invent a little VM crisis and give it a go. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, keep me posted. Uh, I was looking at uh, OMG Ubuntu and they always, they do a nice weekly roundup, which is very handy for us when we're putting these podcasts uh, together for new product releases. And I'm not going to read the entire article as a, as everything else, we'll put it in the show notes if you want to go look at all the updates. But a couple of things rose to the top that caught my interest, uh, two in particular. One is a new nonlinear, well, to, new to me, maybe it's new like Phoenix where it's a 122nd version and I just never heard of it. Uh, but Flowblade uh, as a nonlinear open source video editor. 
and uh, it's uh, source code is available on GitHub. It looks like it's a, a pretty active project, and it looks pretty slick. Now I know you're a Kden user, and, and of course there was an update to Kden Kden Live uh, last week as well. But would you try another video editor? Because to me, Kden always feels a bit awkward. And I, I, looking at the screenshots of Flowblade, it looks like a a more convenient, uh, more natural work environment to me. It also looks like it would be really good on my ultra-wide monitor. So Kaden is awesome, honestly. I think the updates in the last, I'm going to say, 12 months have made it like a professional video editing tool. I had never heard of Flowblade before, though, and it looks great. And if it's lightweight, if it's easy to use for something simple, I would absolutely jump on it and give it a go. In fact, for the next video that I edit, not that I do a lot, it's mainly like screen recordings and things like that. Um, although I've been taking some footage when I'm out cycling recently that I've been working on in uh, Caden Live, I would absolutely uh, give Flowblade a go and see if it's any good. Yeah, if you do, let me know as well, because uh, I'm a very infrequent video editor, which means I want something that's really intuitive that I don't have to stumble around in to do the quick project that I'm, you know, attempting and i'd be curious to see what you think because my experiences with kdm were largely negative but that's probably because it was about five years ago six years ago that i was using it more heavily and it was quite unstable at the time and uh that was uh you know crashing is not something that you want to deal with especially when you have to reload all your video file samples that are going to uh you know take the thing four minutes to restart yeah it's never a good feeling and uh i noticed shutters back from the dead I don't know if you're a Shutter user or not, but it's been a while for me. But um, version 0.95 has been released. Yeah, I see that. I'm, I'm tempted to go grab it off of uh, GitHub and give it a go because I, I was using Shutter long after it stopped being updated and it got wonkier and wonkier and more and more broken as time went on. And eventually I gave up because the built-in screen grab tools in GNOME are quite good, actually. I, if you do, if you're not, if you're a GNOME user, control shift print screen will allow you to draw a box around anything and it copies it to the clipboard and shift print screen will do the same, but instead of copying it to the clipboard, just drops it into your pictures directory in your home directory, which because I'm not using Ubuntu is actually uh, only something I can access <laughs> if we want to reference the last podcast. <laughs> but uh, so, but I really like Shutter because it's really easy to like add arrows and draw circles around things and make a red underline on something, or I don't need to launch GIMP after I take the screenshot in order to finish the job. And mostly it is annotating things for work and for colleagues and stuff. So if it's actively developed and not, if it's even only half as broken as it was when it was abandoned a few years ago, uh, I'd be I'd be all over getting on that again. Yeah, I, uh, well, let me know how you go with that one. And the other one that really stuck out to me, I've never heard of this as well. So this episode's been about a learning experience, is Darktable. Oh, Darktable. Uh, so the great. announcement is Darktable 3.4.1 is out. And apparently it's an alternative to Adobe Lightroom, but yeah, maybe 3.4.1's come out, but this is new for me and something I'm really excited about. Yeah, I, I, uh, I've been using Darktable for quite a few years and I've got several uh, DSLR cameras that I you know, generally take all my photos in RAW with and Darktable's fantastic. I mean, and, and it's not just like an also ran because we don't have Lightroom. Like GIMP is an also ran because we don't have Photoshop kind of thing. Like it, it, it's fully, it's equal or better than, than the commercial alternative. And it's well worth giving it a go if you've got a lot of photos that you want to um, uh, need to edit or manipulate. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll definitely be playing with that one going into the future. A lot's happened in the LibreOffice space too. Uh, 7.1's come out. Yeah, um, another benefit of being an Arch user, I uh, got 7.1 in the last week or so uh, when I did an update and... 
I mentioned to you in the pre-show, unfortunately, it was a few days late for me, but one of the features that doesn't sound like that big a deal that is kind of a big deal if you edit a lot of documents in Writer was the default uh, option for anchoring your images in text was, I don't know what it was, but it was not something that anybody would ever want. And it made the text flow very oddly. So you, I ended up having to, every time I pasted an image in, have to like go in and edit the anchor type and change it. And there's now a preference for that, which is awesome. So apparently I'm not the only one that was struggling with that. But in addition to that, uh, having used it for a couple documents already for, uh, for work purposes, primarily in Writer, but I played around with Impress a little bit as well, was the new user interface. It's fantastic. So um, the, the article uh, that we'll link to is on OMG Ubuntu. It's wrong, at least for my distro, and it, it says that the first time you launch it, it'll prompt you to ask you what type of user interface you want, and then you can kind of get a little selector menu to choose between them. That didn't work for me. Uh, I, I launched it, and I just got a banner saying, you're running 7.1 of uh, version 7.1 of LibreOffice for the first time. Do you want to learn what's new? And if you click the button, it takes you to the release notes, but it didn't bring up the selector. So if like me and uh, you have that experience, you can go into the view menu and choose user interface. And that will bring up that wizard selector that lets you pick which uh, interface style you prefer. Uh, once you've changed it, it then moves, which is a bit odd. Uh, the, it's no longer in the view menu, at least in the, so I, I switched to what's called the tabbed view, which I really, really like. It feels similar to Microsoft's ribbon in Office, but I think it's done better. And I, I really like the the workflow and the visuals around it. It's just, uh, it's really polished. It feels uh, natural to use. The problem is the selector got moved. So if you don't like it and you want to choose a different one, uh, you then go into the hamburger menu in the up, upper right-hand corner. And that's where the user interface uh, option is, at least when you're in tabbed view, to go back to that wizard where you can pick amongst them. But uh, the compatibility with Microsoft Office file formats has improved again to the point where I can actually open a PowerPoint, work on it and save it back out and it will load into PowerPoint without error and everything is rendered correctly on both Linux and Windows um, when I do that, which is, uh, I mean, this is 20 years of since star office working on this problem. So that was fantastic. Uh, same with, with, uh, I've been working on word docs pretty regularly inside of it and then saving them back out to OneDrive, and they open in O365 as if they're native. So I, I have to really uh, hand it to the document foundation for a great release. Yeah. It's just an amazing software package. I've been doing some development work recently and even using the CLI for uh, LibreOffice and, it's just ridiculously powerful what you can do, and not just from the UI, but from the command line as well. In my opinion, it's probably one of the most underrated software packages that's out there. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are there, but you know, there's just continual development going on with it. You, you also shared with me something that I wasn't aware of that you know we're pushing for LibreOffice um, or the community is um, to make it uh, usable in the web browser as well via WebAssembly, uh, which was. I don't know about you. I think that's great news, being able to potentially host this or just use it in the browser. I think that's awesome. Well, that's already available. And in fact, uh, you've got access to my NextCloud instance if you want to play with it. Uh, I have it already working with the non-WebAssembly version. Uh, so Collabra Online released the LibreOffice Online about a year ago, I want to say. Uh, but all of the hard work is done on the server side. So I'm running a Docker container on the server that's kind of hosting the LibreOffice instance, but it's all done in HTML5 Canvas and it works great. It's a real genuine competitor to Google Docs 0365 and it works good. So if you want to check it out, Ben, it's it's uh, enabled on my NextCloud instance. Uh, I've been running it for uh, at least a year. And then the, the change here is moving to WebAssembly so that the 
instead of having to have that whole Docker backend running a full virtual LibreOffice environment that then renders to HTML. It's very server intense. So it's fine like for you and me and three other people to edit a document collaboratively in my Nextcloud instance. But if you tried to host this for an enterprise, you'd really need a serious cluster of machines because it's it's uh, it's almost like running each web instance is like running a full copy of LibreOffice on the server. It's uh, it's pretty um, memory intensive. So the goal here is to move most of that backend code into WebAssembly. So it's actually running in the client side, similar to the way 0365 and, and, and Google do it, uh, is my understanding, so that it'd be far more efficient. So you have scalability to have a thousand people on one web server instance, for example, uh, being able to collaboratively edit documents. So I'm not in a hurry for the WebAssembly version because for my scale, it doesn't really matter. If it's going to be pretty much the same GUI with a different backend, it's, uh, I look forward to it because I don't like running the extra Docker container on my server, but it's a good, it's good progress. Like it really is. I mean, it's a genuine competitor to the big guys. Yeah. And uh, speaking of competitors, it's not just Microsoft that's out there putting out, out a competitive uh, software package. Let's talk about uh, yeah, OpenOffice. Where do you stand with that? I, I noticed you sent me through a, a forum article about, uh, you know, the Apache Software Foundation and supporting OpenOffice. I'm ashamed to know that OpenOffice even exists and is still getting downloads, um, considering that they're really riding on the coattails of a forked project and the LibreOffice project. Well, my, my history goes a long way back, and I think... Um... I referenced it a few minutes ago, which is, of course, this all began as Star Office, which was a German office suite that was uh, back when there actually was some competition in the office world and WordPerfect was still a thing. And then Star Office eventually got purchased by Sun, uh, which turned it into OpenOffice. And then, of course, Sun got bought by Oracle and like all good things, they get destroyed by Oracle when they get touched by them. So it kind of withered on the vine at Oracle and the Document Foundation forked it and uh, created now what we call LibreOffice as a result of all that to keep it alive. And then eventually Oracle, quote, donated it to the Apache Software Foundation. So we ended up with this weird situation where we have the original thing that has the brand recognition, OpenOffice, but it only has seven developers and has pretty much had no movement in, in 10 years in my experience. Few bug fixes here and there, but just really withered on the vine. Whereas the LibreOffice group, got most of all the developers who all quit during the Oracle uh, kerfuffle and came to the uh, Document Foundation to work on LibreOffice. So I, the, what's annoying, I guess, since you brought it up, is those downloads. Like the people know the brand OpenOffice and they go there thinking they're getting an alternative office suite and then they go, oh, wow, this is garbage. And then they probably give up and never use it again. And it's so disappointing that they're getting over a million downloads a month still for garbage code when the LibreOffice product is so uh, mature now and so compatible and so uh, easy to use, right? I mean, I, heck, I run LibreOffice on my phone. It's amazing. And this is what drives me nuts, right? Like you've got OpenOffice that is reminiscent of using it of, I'm going to say Office 2007, maybe earlier. Let's say Microsoft Office 2003, prior to the ribbons and everything else. Like it, it looks junk, it feels junk. No offense to the seven developers that are still working on it, but now's the time to say, well, look at LibreOffice, look at the innovations they're doing, look at the team. It's time to put in a 302 redirect so anyone that types in OpenOffice gets sent to LibreOffice's website and people download the preferred software package. This software war that's going on is just bad for FOSS. It's bad for free and open source software. 
So let's hope that eventually um, the Apache Software Foundation comes to their senses and acknowledges that LibreOffice is the or should be the preferred platform of choice. And uh, yeah, something's done about it. I mean, all, some of this all comes down to licensing, which is a, a perpetual problem in the open source community. I mean, I support people choosing a license that works for them and whoever writes the code has every right to determine how that code will be shared or not shared. And uh, I support that. But when it gets into these petty things where we end up destroying our own overarching goal of the community for the sake of this, uh, it just feels wrong. And, and this happens so often. I was just conversing with a friend yesterday about, you know, the split between GIMP and Glimpse and like both sides are wrong. Like, how can you create an argument where both sides are wrong? Because, well, the, the reason both sides are wrong is because no matter what, the community loses. And that's just the way I feel about this open office, Libre office thing. The community loses. Wouldn't those seven developers rather be part of the bigger team working on the successful thing that everybody wants to use and developing features instead of just little bug fixes that have to be done to keep the wheels on it? I imagine it would be much more exciting to be part of the, the document foundation team working on something that's uh, more functional and capable and, and carrying forward instead of tr desperately trying to keep your head above water. Uh, I don't understand why... What benefit is this to the Apache Foundation? When it was Oracle, I get it, because Oracle will do anything to destroy everything. But like Apache, historically, has been a great organization for nurturing projects. And I guess, but none of them are successful aside from the web browser, to be honest. Like, I mean, I guess Tomcat, but like I use the Apache directory server uh, uh, editor for working on LDAP stuff. And I, I think I'm like one of eight people that knows it exists. Yeah, I, I think you could be spot on there, but... I don't know. Let's. I guess we'll just see what the future holds. But at the moment, it sounds like a true stalemate, and the interest from Apache to do anything about it is almost nil. Yeah, I, maybe we should petition DuckDuckGo and Google so that if you type in Open Office, it goes. Did you mean LibreOffice? <laughs> it's not a bad option. I uh, I don't know if our voices will have enough sway, but maybe we can do a GoFundMe or something like that and uh, <laughs> try and get some recognition out there. Well, maybe we should propose to the Document Foundation that they buy some ads on search engines that anytime you type in Open Office, you get a banner ad for LibreOffice. I'll donate for that. So so let's pivot to security for a few minutes. We got two security stories we wanted to cover quickly, being that we're both security nerds. Uh, I threw in Linux 5.12 to support USB 4 security lever 5 to disable PCIe tunneling. That's a mouthful. This is from Pharonix. Michael Larabel wrote it up. What we're talking about here is, in essence, disabling the ability to directly grab bus channels on PCIe bus from USB 4. And of course, one of the benefits of USB 4 is getting those channels. Like it makes things super fast and allows you to have these, you know, eGPUs and all this kind of stuff like we have with USB C uh, 3.1. But of course, there's a giant security risk because uh, when you have something directly on the bus, it's allowed to, to access memory, right? You can directly read memory. And the, without being able to directly read memory, you're not going to be super fast. But of course, you are super insecure. So there's certainly a lot of environments where you may not want PCIe devices. And I, I think about like my server, for example, like my server, I don't want anything connected to it over USB that can read its memory, right? Like there's, there's not, I don't have an application that I need high speed direct bus access on my server, but I want, you know, to be compatible with USB 4 devices, right? So I think that's the direction this is going. And uh, I think this is great for security, right? It means that we're going to have the 
best of both worlds. Like for those of us that want to be able to have an eGPU on our laptop, we can disable things like this. But for secure environments, we don't have to bring that risk along. Yeah, totally agree. Um, it's good just to see the general maturity of how we're handling USB 4 or Thunderbolt, whatever you'd like to call it. You know, I've, um, I'm actually using a Lenovo uh, USB dock or a Thunderbolt dock, I should say. And it's great to have everything 100% feature rich as if I was using Windows or uh, Mac OS and just seeing these tidy little bits of uh, security on top that, you know, has already been patched in Windows and Mac OS and is already available, seeing that flow down and seeing that we're up there, or I should say the free and open source community is up there, is great news. Yeah, and they uh, they also include an option to disable it, but leave the DisplayPort functionality enabled. And that, to me, is the sweet spot, because that's my application right now. My laptop's got USB-C Thunderbolt, and that's plugged into the USB-C on my Dell monitor. I don't want anything other than display port running over that connection, right? That's fine. I want my video, but then I don't want the, the risk of uh, DMA access from a rogue device. So really um, good work on the kernel people for getting that into 512. And that's not that far away. I mean, 511 is launching this Sunday and typically we're on like about a six week cadence, I think. So 512 is uh, very, very soon now. And I believe we'll go into active development starting Monday. So 10 year old Sudobug, uh, let's talk about that. It's stack overflow vulnerability, lets you get root access. It's pretty severe. Yeah. What what worries me about it is this is going to be around forever. And I think people underestimate these types of vulnerabilities because someone I was talking to, I mentioned it to a a friend at another company that works in our security space. And he's like, well, you know, I don't actually have interactive accounts on any of my Linux boxes. So I'm not really in a hurry to worry about this. And I'm going, hmm, but you do run web servers, right? And you do run, like, this is an ideal vulnerability for an attacker uh, once they're able to find a vulnerability in something externally facing, right? This is all about privilege escalation. And uh, something like this that's underestimated because it's not the university computer that 500 students shell into. People think, oh, well, if we're not multi-user, it doesn't matter. It does. Yeah, exactly. When you've got a vulnerable WordPress instance and all of a sudden you've got shell and you're running as... Also known as a WordPress instance. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, when you're running as WWData or whatever account that you're running uh, your web server as, you know, the biggest challenge there is, well, how do I pivot? How do I get privilege escalation? So then I've got, you know, uncontrolled root access on the box and this is the best way to do it. So what's scary is like every other vulnerability is everyone figured it out quickly. There was public proof of concept code out there as well. So you can go to ExploitDB and get the exploit, run it on your box, and within minutes have yourself root access and uncontrolled access. So patch, 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 I think is all we can really say about it. But this is going to haunt people for a long time. Uh, The amount of times I've been doing security assessments are similar, and you discover that people aren't patching their Linux servers. They think they're stable. They think they're safe. They just don't touch them. Um, This is going to hurt for so, so long. Yeah, when I first started using Unix operating systems in the 80s, the big brag was uh, your uptime, like how long since you had rebooted because it was so reliable compared to Windows. And now it's the other way around. I look at my uptime and I'm like, holy crap, eight days. That means I haven't patched and rebooted. I need to do that right now. (laughs) (laughs) 
So uh, to close on security, I don't know if it's really security or privacy, but um, there was a lot of talk during the week of the Raspberry Pi phoning home to Microsoft. I don't know how you feel about this, but uh, really in Raspberry or Raspberry Pi OS, which it's now called, there's been a Microsoft repository added in there. It's got Microsoft's GPG keys in there as well. So what that means is every time you do an apt update, an apt install, uh, your Raspberry Pi is technically talking back to a Microsoft repository. The the idea behind this is pretty simple. It's, you know, the Raspberry Pi is a development platform, a learning platform. It's used by a lot of educators because of the price. It's cheap. And, you know, you can plug a display and have a fully functional system for less than, let's say, 50 US, which is pretty good. So the idea behind putting the Microsoft repository into Raspberry Pi OS was to give people easy access to some great software packages by Microsoft, such as VS Code. But of course, people are now saying, well, telemetry from every Raspberry Pi is going out to Microsoft. So technically, they could track us and do things with that information. So it it made a lot of noise. I'm not too sure where you stand with this. I personally, I'm not too stressed by it. Uh, but I know you're much more privacy conscious uh, than I am. Um, what are your thoughts? I like to think of myself as a practical realist. I Look, Raspberry Pi OS is designed to be an all-in-one thing to get inexperienced people up and doing interesting projects. And VS Code is great. I don't have an issue with this. That, that, to me, this is uh, much ado about nothing. Like if you're worried about this, you already, this is about purism, right? This is about being purely open source or purely private uh, or purely outside of commercial interests. And when you bought the Raspberry Pi, you already lost that battle. And we talked a few episodes ago about Broadcom Wi-Fi and Broadcom chips that are used in the Pine phone that we were uh, reviewing. And I mentioned how a similar bug in Broadcom Wi-Fi also exists in the, in the Raspberry Pi drivers. Broadcom is the least open source, most terrible thing ever. The reason you use it is it's cheap. And when you bought the thing that had Broadcom chips, you already understood the goal of the people behind developing the thing, which is to make a cheap, portable, incredibly useful device that anybody can turn on and use and start to learn to be a developer or make a project. And that's what it is. And if VS Code is software that they want to include to make that super easy, their goal is not making it open source. Their goal is making it usable and approachable. And if you don't like it, you know, this is a this is the most bizarre thing to ever complain about to me. You can just load another OS onto your Raspberry Pi anytime you want. If you're if you're so concerned about calling home to Microsoft, then you already know more than enough to load Arch on ARM or Ubuntu or any other supported operating system onto your Pi and not have this problem. So uh, I, I think people just need to get over themselves. Couldn't agree more. So on that, I think it's a perfect time to close. Don't stress about Microsoft if you use a Raspberry Pi. This has been Linux at Work, episode number six. To contact us and stay in touch, please visit us at www.linuxatwork.org. Our podcasts are available there via RSS. They're on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else fine podcasts even are syndicated. We appreciate your feedback and ideas, so please share them with us via email at hosts at linuxatwork.org or Twitter at linuxatwork and in our subreddit slash r slash linuxatwork.
say you got everything Gonna be everyone Gotta be everyone Don't say you got anything Gotta be everything Gonna be everything But I don't know what I need But I don't know what I want But all I do know is I want me some But I Oh, wow.